Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined from Portland, Oregon, by our correspondent from Trump's and now Biden's America, Jason Wilson. Thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me once again. Now, Jason, uh, when we spoke to you at the start of the year, Oregon was on fire. I think when I last spoke to you a few months ago, you were in the midst of a heat dome. And now we speak to you as uh, you recover from a bomb cyclone. Yes. So a bomb cyclone, I mean, I don't don't know if it means anything specifically uh, other than, you know, I think it's a term that the media, the news media have latched onto to some extent, but what it is, is a, it's, it's a winter storm that I guess is a low pressure system. So it kind of resembles a cyclone, but the net result anyway has been strong wind and rain right in the middle of autumn, which has played havoc with road transport, people traveling around. So yeah, we're getting all kinds of flavors of apocalyptic weather here in the last couple of years. Yeah. I, I get that uh, we're, in a, we're in a climate crisis, but there's no need to take the mickey. <laughs> we've actually had bomb cyclones for the last few years, so it seems to be emerging as a, as a feature of the autumn. Hopefully, though, I mean, the good thing is that <laughs> over the weekend while the bomb cyclone was happening, the National Weather Service, which is kind of like the Bureau of Meteorology, said they were able to say that Oregon's fire season is actually officially over now <laughs> yeah. because so much rain was kind of dumped on the forest fires in Southern Oregon and Northern California that it managed to put them out. So. I guess that's good. I wanted to ask you about uh, one of your recent articles that uh, you published earlier this week. Was uh, You had some secret recordings of the Council for National Policy. I feel like there's a bit of a story behind these recordings. Is that, is that right? Well, so officially the Council for National Policy is – they enjoin their members to secrecy. The, the Council for National Policy is – I guess, a 40-year-old organization, and and really what it does is run meetings, but the meetings are between the most high-powered and influential people in the conservative movement. They are very much, uh, you know, in in the United States, uh, they're what's called a 501c3 organization, which refers to, you know, the the area of statute that that sets up nonprofits. But basically, they're a nonprofit which is not supposed to be partisan. So officially, they're not supposed to advocate for you know, a particular candidate in an electoral contest or to, to advocate, certainly that, you know, they're not supposed to advocate for an electoral candidate. And, and really the spirit of the, the thing is that they're not supposed to advocate for a particular party. But this is very much a, a Republican aligned organization that in the recordings I got, they were 
which were from 2018 and 2019. And the 2019 ones, they were all very upset about uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez being elected and they were constantly referring to her. And I guess she was a bit of a feature in conservative media at that time. But, you know, the, the, the people who were involved are kind of like people who are culture wars figures who folks in Australia might have heard of, like Charlie Kirk. But you know, my story was about principally a guy called Stephen Moore who is less prominent, but like a lot of these people, has passed through conservative think tanks. You know, Trump wanted to appoint him to the Federal Reserve Board, but uh, actually a Guardian, at that time, Guardian reporter John Swain exposed a lot of stuff from his past, like that he was hundreds of thousands of dollars in the red in the alimony payments. And he eventually renounced his candidacy for the Fed Board. But, you know, in my story, he and Larry Kudlow, who was the, the chair of Trump's Council of Economic Advisors and, you know, arguably the most influential economist in the country while in that role. Him and Larry Kudlow, you know, persuaded Trump in a single meeting on Moore's account to just sort of cut corporate taxes in half <laughs> um, and was boasting about it to these people. So, yeah, I mean, the recordings had, had sort of partially been reported on before by, you know, some investigative reporters with a, another nonprofit called Document. But they were those recordings were published for a time and then they weren't. Not all of them were fully reported on. I sourced the recordings independently, shall we say. And yeah, uh, they were kind of, in both cases, as I understand it from documents reporting, they were kind of lying around waiting for anyone to pick them up. They were not properly kind of secured or anything like that. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, no one's done anything illegal as far as I know, but, but because they just weren't. They were easily accessible, even though in one of the recordings, as I detailed in the story, there was a lot of finger-wagging at attendees about not sharing anything that might have gone on at the conference or not uh, communicating with journalists and stuff. Even though they'd said that, they made these recordings and, and didn't secure them very well, let's just say. I, my favourite part, I think, was that the way they convinced him to cut the corporate tax was uh, with pictures. You don't like his words too good. Yeah, I... I mean, I feel like it's slightly almost redundant to say that Trump is not a particularly systematic thinker or a nuanced thinker, but I thought it was rather remarkable that someone addressing a conference that Trump himself actually addressed in 2020 and which was very pro-Trump for this guy to get up in front of those people and not only to say that Trump was... All of those things, not a systematic thinker, not the kind of person who even likes to read, but to have that sort of accepted with with laughter or with silence agreement by, by this crowd. I mean, even though they're very pro-Trump, they don't think he's very smart, I guess, or they don't think he's very learned anyway, let's just say, um, and that's fine by them. So, I mean, I think the import of the story was that Trump sold himself as a populist and more in the in the recording in the speech kind of said there was this residual populism that he had to get over but that it wasn't particularly difficult when it came to the crunch trump wanted bigger corporate tax cuts than he actually managed to get in you know by the time that it had passed through negotiations in the senate so so the populace was easily influenced by economists ideologues whose job really is to represent, you know, the interests of the richest people in the United States and in the world, for that matter, you know, in order to get their tax bill down, to cut it in half, in fact. What a shock. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know, I know. 
But, you know, I mean, I think it's it's what had previously been reported by Vox, I think, was that maybe Trump had read a more op-ed that had gone out at the same time, but more had gone further. And I, I think it's worth noting, even in retrospect, that like who had access to Trump and who was able to have these meetings with him and how liberal outlets, not to single out Vox, but how liberal outlets thought that Trump was still kind of scanning the universe of, you know, conservative opinion and, and grabbing ideas and was still, you know, minimally at least interested in ideas. But actually it's, it's just about who talked to him last. <laughs> Wasn't even checking in on the Jason Wilson burst your bubble. Uh, no, columns no, for a no, he, succinct I summary. No, I think I think Trump's reading is I, I think to the extent that he ventures beyond the tabloids, he's he's only wanting to read stuff about himself. That was the impression I got from his uh, late lamented Twitter account. The other sort of big story this week uh, was the Facebook leaks, the big Facebook reveal. Have you been following that? I have. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean. Uh, it's shocked but not surprised is, is I suppose how I felt about a lot of that. I guess some of the details were were disturbing. So, for example, the way in which they'd sort of waved aside, you know, ethnic strife. I don't want to call it ethnic cleansing because I'm not confident that that's the right description, but certainly unbalanced ethnic conflict in India, the way that they had been threatened by Apple, um, who are no saints, over kind of human trafficking type issues and also the way in which, uh, you know, employees at least felt that they had clearly failed to apply their rules consistently to conservatives in the United States. I mean, that that was no surprise, but I guess the, the international scope and the international impacts were, you know, not were, were news to me uh, and, and surprising, you know, to some extent. The, the way in which... I suppose their stewardship of their platform has had such wide-ranging effects all, all around the world. I mean, it just seemed—it just seemed like uh, someone should have been on top of that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there was any specific Australia stuff. Was there? I don't think so. I don't think Australia and a lot of the world got a huge look in. So I read an AP. I think AP did the story about. Uh, you know, the exploitation of Southeast Asian women who, you know, are often, whatever, conscripted, drawn into forms of indentured labour or virtual slavery in the Middle East uh, as domestic workers. You know, that was one story I read today. And I think that the New York Times had a story today as well about their, I guess, refusal to, to, to play any role in diffusing conflicts between Hindu nationalists and Muslims and other kind of minority groups in India. And going back before Francis Haugen, how do we say that? Haugen, Horgan, I've, I've heard both pronunciations equally. Anyway, you know, the whistleblower, let's call her that. Going back before her, there was an earlier whistleblower who had talked about how as bad, uh, as bad as people had said the situation in the United States was, there was much more attention on their performance in the United States than in, say, um, I think Honduras was one place that was brought up, you know, where populist leaders had had... Uh, you know, orchestrated bot campaigns and, uh, you know, had sort of manipulated the platform to their advantage and, and had not really been pulled up. I mean, I guess, you know, when it becomes a global story like that, it's 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 hard to it's hard to take in all at once. All of that stuff, I mean, there's been a lot published today, just today. I think the general impression is the same, but the detail is going to take some time to 
to work through. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that there's, there's going to be more coming out. But, you know, if not in Australia, I mean, regionally, there are a lot of impacts. You know, I think a lot of the, the folks who are subject to kind of trafficking and stuff to the Middle East are from the Philippines, which is, you know, in the region. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's when you're talking about sort of racialized conflict, ethnic conflict or whatever, that's, that's not only bad in and of itself. And, and we're not only talking about sort of mass violence, but it's potentially destabilizing more broadly. And it's, it's astounding when you think about it, that a website has that much, <laughs> has that much impact and power, but that's, that's kind of where we are. I don't know. How, how are you guys thinking about that? I'm wondering, um, will this uh, latest uh, batch of documents make uh, the slightest bit of difference? I, I don't see. I, I'm not convinced that it will. Uh, I just can't. It's, um, you know, Facebook is an unstoppable force, as far as I can tell. Such a cynic. Well, not, no, no, I don't think I'm being cynical. I think I'm being, uh, you know, uh, realistic. You disagree, Kim? Well, that's what that's what a cynic's always going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. What do you think, Cam? One of so one of the things that jumped out at me was the experiment that, that Facebook had done, setting up a profile. I think the name was Carol, and they liked a couple of a. Uh, sort of conservative pages and joined a couple of sort of vaguely conservative groups and then followed the recommendations. And within a couple of days, they were serving up hardcore far-right material to this profile. And, I mean, that's something that I've seen myself going through this, the same process. So uh, I was not surprised by that outcome. But I guess, and I suppose I was not surprised by what they did about it. But uh, it was interesting that they knew just how much of a problem they had and did precisely zero about it. So, yeah, I agree with Andy. I don't expect them to do anything further. It's it's not a problem, though. No, it's, it's, a, the, it's the business model. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Um, I mean, to, to be slightly more nuanced, I think that – so so clearly the fact that this whistleblower has this material to bring out of Facebook means that there is a kind of – you know, there, there is internal – debate at Facebook, as we would expect at any large institution, commercial, public, whatever. But it just seems like a lot of those debates, you know, which which seem like they went on for a while and it seems like people, you know, had legitimate points to make and they had evidence to back it up and, and they got far enough to produce research and reports, which means that they had some kind of resources to do that and some sort of authorization to do that. The problem at the company seems to be that so many important decisions were kind of kicked upstairs to executives and ultimately a lot were kicked upstairs to Mark Zuckerberg who who seems to have made the wrong decision in every every case. It seems to be a uniquely sort of top-down company when it comes to those kind of important policy decisions maybe not uniquely but but it certainly is that and it just seems like it's a case where you can actually point to an individual in a lot of cases and say this person had the final decision and the decision they made had these incredibly bad outcomes so you know i'm not i'm, I'm into structural explanations where 
they're they're appropriate and usually they are but but it just seems like tons of stuff actually got to mark zuckerberg's desk and he and he you know he was the one who who actually went okay yeah let's let's do let's do the bad thing i i don't know did you see the uh facebook dangerous individuals and organizations list that was leaked uh, a couple of weeks ago I did, and it was so strange in, in, I mean, it was almost like from a dimension, two or three dimensions over, you know, one close to our own, but one where everything has a different name and, and fictional organizations have a real place in the world and, and, and tendencies or ideologies actually are organizations and stuff. It seemed to be very jumbled and poorly informed. Was that your impression as well? Yeah, it seemed like, and I think this might be a problem that infests a lot of that CVE space that when it came to Islamists, they seemed very across it. In fact, there was like, the one that jumped out at me was like the diamond company from Western Australia where the the son of the owner had been arrested in Abu Dhabi or something. Oh, right. yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. they were right across that. And then it was like dangerous individuals, Himmler. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I don't disagree with them, but I don't, I'm not sure how dangerous an individual he is on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they had, you know, they had like, it's going down and stuff along with, I, I mean, I, I can't remember if American Renaissance was, was in there, but, but you know, they, organizations like that, alongside it's going down. Which, I mean, I don't know what danger it's going down has presented to anyone particularly. I, I'm just not sure. They certainly haven't been involved with, um, you know, organizing any any kind of violence, as far as I know. It just seemed to be the other aspect of that that space you mentioned, Cam. I think is that there's a there's a lot of squaring up. There's a lot of Kind of loading up some some organisations from the left side in order to sort of, you know, make it clear that this isn't a partisan exercise or whatever. So they just sort of grab anything that's lying around. I don't know. Yeah, it was very strange. It, it seemed like I don't know who they consulted in forming that list, in drafting that list. I, I just don't know. I don't know. You know, it's likely that they consulted more than one individual or organisation in formulating it, but it just. It did not seem to me to be a particularly well-informed map of dangerous organizations or even organizations that really exist <laughs> in the world. Like it seemed like um, a... Yeah. Uh, who nominated Spear of Longinus? Well, exactly. I, <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> it's a, it was a bit of a deep, deep cut. I know. I mean, cut on the one hand, it's like, uh, you know, respect. But, you know, maybe if, if, if uh, the Spear was part of a list of, you know, Several hundred other you know, Nazi rock and roll bands, I'd understand, but just just Spear of Longinus? I mean, come on. Yeah, it's like they asked, yeah, it's like they asked for, you know, five things in every category, you know, of a random list of categories. Like, we need some bands. I don't know. I, it, it's, I, you know, usually when you see a list like that, you can, you can kind of figure out how they've arrived at it. But uh, in this case, I just, it felt, you know, almost random in terms of, you know, a sampling of e- extremist groups or whatever. It just seemed very, very strange. And and like I said, just a very poor guide to what's going in the world at the moment and what what Facebook moderators should be looking out for. It just didn't seem to bear any kind of relation to that. It just, you know, I don't know. I know in, um, 
In response to, uh, there was a brief uh, excerpt from a PR release that Facebook made following the publication of these Facebook papers, which boasted of how many uh, billions of dollars they're spending on their research and in ensuring that the uh, website is, um, you know, a safe space or something. And I can't help but wonder that maybe they got, you know, an intern to <laughs> spend a week looking through some, you know, I don't know, extremist materials and, and, and coming up with a list and, you know, it got signed off. It's, it's in that sense, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's entirely possible. I, they, I mean, it's 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 not whatever happened, you know, in detail. It's not. It does not reflect a systematic approach. It does not reflect if they have had expert input that has not been the thing that's determined the shape of it. You know, in the final instance, and I, I, I want to be careful because they may have approached people, you know, who know something about this stuff and gave them good information, and that just all got mixed up with whatever the hell else <laughs> they, they drew on. But it, it just it hasn't ended up as a good or useful document. And it's, it's, it, it's disappointing, frankly, that they just do not know what the most pressing kind of problems are and, and what the organisations, uh, the most dangerous organisations actually are that are, are exploiting Sorry, you know, organisations, talking in terms of organisations is even a little bit, you know, behind the eight ball, really. If you look at something like the Boogaloo movement or QAnon or, I don't know, Stop the Steal or, you know, Reopen type, there's no organisations there. It's it's a tendency or a, goodness, I don't know what the, what, what the correct kind of word is. It's a... Um, it's a mood, it's a vibe <laughs> that, that actually depends on platforms like that to, to spread and to work and to, to do its work. It doesn't need an organisation, you know, in the sense of the, the kind of more old-fashioned extremist organisation. I'm not saying those kinds of organisations no longer exist and that, that they're not important, but it seems to me like the most pressing problems in 2021 and, and maybe for the last half decade have been have not required a kind of organizational apparatus to really get get stuff done i don't know i mean if i'm being too whatever I, I don't know what you think about that but it just seems like you know for them to go looking for organizations or or bands you know or spear of longerness <laughs> it, it seems to be missing the mark so completely that it raises questions about whether they actually understand their own platform. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. Again, I, I, I suppose at risk of being called being called cynical. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure it's it's so much about an absence of knowledge as having different priorities, and uh, in the absence of, uh, I suppose, oversight of whether by law or through some other mechanism i just don't think things are going to change but speaking of um structure it's also the case that this week there's a trial commencing with regards charlottesville the unite the right rally which i think um one of the intentions of which is to try and establish who was responsible for what occurred in charlottesville what is it four years ago now do you have you been following the 
legal path since then, Jason? Not not as closely as others, but you know, I've I've got a, an, an idea of the shape of things. Yeah, it's a it's a federal civil case, so um, you know, a number of parties, including NGOs, are are kind of bringing a a civil case against the presumed you know organisers and. Uh, this case really, it's just come to trial, but it's been going on almost since Charlottesville happened. Kessler versus Signs is the name, um, Signs versus Kessler, rather, is, is the main one. Yeah, I mean, look, for better or worse, <laughs> over the decades, some of the biggest kind of civil rights victories, I suppose, that have happened in the United States have happened through uh, civil rather than prosecutorial action. I'm reminded of. Being in Portland, I'm reminded of the, death of the murder of Mulligata Soror and how that eventually led to, you know, civil action against Tom Metzger and, and his organisation, which led to that organisation, you know, effectively being shut down and Metzger really being, you know, thrust even further to the margins of American politics and society than he had been and basically being sent broke. And, and it would be nice, I think, if public legal processes were taking the lead there. And I'm not saying necessarily criminal justice uh, or the criminal justice system in the United States, which we all know is deeply flawed. I'm not saying, you know, I want to see people in prison necessarily, but I'm saying that, like, it would be nice if there was a kind of public dimension to, to, to whatever justice process is happening, but that's just not the way it's worked out a lot of the time. And I think that's what's happening here as well. I mean, I don't, I mean, James Alex Fields was subjected to prosecutorial justice and is now likely to spend the rest of his life in prison. But James Alex Fields was not orchestrating that event. And unfortunately, it seems like civil action is the the only way to, to kind of get at this situation. But... The common element, it seems to me, is that just as James Alex Fields' defence attorneys, who who were, you know, legitimate lawyers, but it seemed to me, in my opinion, really relied on conspiracy theories in their defence of James Alex Fields because, well, I don't know, maybe maybe they they didn't have a lot else to resort to. Um, but uh, in this case as well, it seems like. A lot of the um, defendants, some of whom are representing themselves, are going in the same direction. And I think that's what I would be expecting to see. Look, I'll be keeping an eye on this and, you know, I'll certainly be keen on finding out what the result is and finding out what people have to say for themselves in their defence. And, uh, you know, I've reported on that whole situation and I, I, I would really like to see some accountability, but I also think that... We know what happened. One side of this will be trying to find ways to deny what happened and to deny their culpability in it. And to be honest, yeah, there's only so much of that that I think I can bear, given that I'm not assigned to report on it. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? It's it's kind of like uh, I, but before we got on air, I hope you don't mind me paraphrasing it, Cam. But 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 Cam was saying. You know, that in the preliminary remarks and in the jury screening, you know, we can get a sense that they're going to be relying on on some kind of conspiracy theory that involves Antifa and Antifa provocation, right? And I don't know, uh, Antifa. What I saw that day were a lot of people from Charlottesville, from all over the South, who were 
assembling to oppose a really well-organized Nazi rally. There weren't that many people in Black Bloc there. I mean, I don't know <laughs> what the anti Antifa defense is going to center on, but there weren't like tons of people in Black Bloc there. There were tons of people there who were, or there were a number of people there who were prepared to counter what they saw as, you know, neo-Nazi organizing with physical force. But I, I don't know. I mean, they were all kinds of people. And, and I just feel like what we're going to get in a lot of these defense, a lot of these defenses is a kind of conspiracy theory about Antifa. And I don't, I don't know if I was reporting on it, I'd, I'd, I'd pay a lot of attention, of course, because, you know, you want to do your job, but I'm not. So I just, I don't know how much information this whole process is going to yield. Um, aside from whatever discovery might happen and whatever might come up on, on, on the witness stand. I don't know how, how, how you, you two are feeling about it. Well, I don't know. This might be a bit of a trite observation, but so in some of the jury selection, they were asking these questions about what are your thoughts on Antifa? And it felt like something had gone quite wrong, but you would have these sort of, you know, 70 year old retirees with very strong opinions on Antifa. Like just the fact that that was happening, something had gone awry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, juries are unpredictable. Jury selection is unpredictable. Uh, I, in a civil suit, especially, I mean, it's it's you know, but I don't know. I congratulate the people who have sought to pursue justice for this long. I am less interested in the titillation that might come from the absurdity of whatever defence you know these guys might cook up. I I just don't I just don't think that pro se defendants in a, in a civil case, people representing themselves, themselves in a civil case who also happen to be white supremacists are going to come up with anything that's that's different to, to, to what we've already seen in people who are trying to explain away, you know, the violence and mayhem that they visited upon that city. I, 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 but, you know, I mean, I also... That said, it's essential that all of this happens. You know, it's essential that this process is, is gone through because it's the only process that appears to be available. Jason, uh, you're enjoying the, the freedoms that Portland and uh, America afford you. I'm wondering just how glad you are to have escaped the tyranny that has overtaken Australia uh, under uh, our tyrannical government, especially that of dictator Dan, and will you be joining Candace Owens and, and the US Army when they um, attempt to uh, invade Australia and restore the kinds of freedoms that you currently enjoy. So I, I got to say, I, I actually drove back to Portland through the bomb cyclone yesterday. I was out in Burns, Oregon. And Burns, Oregon, you may remember, is the site of the, or the staging ground at least, of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge occupation in 2016. And look, all kinds of different people live and work in Burns, including a lot of people who work for the the Wildlife Reserve, all kinds of different people. But it has one of the worst outbreaks. Uh, the, Honey County is the county. It has one of the worst outbreaks in the state at the moment. And it was just stunning, like even inside national chains like Safeway and Starbucks, no one was wearing masks, even though there's a state-level mask mandate in place at the moment. So I was feeling pretty free out there. Um <laughs> Uh, like and, and that's, I suppose, I 
am upset that although I have been vaccinated, although I've been vaccinated for months, I you know have not really been able to get back to Australia because there's no flights really, and you know I would have to spend weeks in quarantine, and it would just be really difficult. I, I also think that um, I also think that there have been failures in in Australia's vaccine response, mostly at the federal level. is is my strong sense in in terms of acquiring you know, the proper vaccines and in terms of organising all of that. But the other thing I'd say is that, and maybe this is just Twitter, and that's my main lens on Australia at the moment. I mean, what I'd say is Australians seem to be, a lot of Australians seem to be sort of at each other's throats, especially across state lines, when by any sane standard, Australia's response to coronavirus has been pretty good, you know, and people have cooperated and you know there have been outbreaks but but nothing like what we've seen in the US you know if you look at a state like a Victoria and a state of the equivalent size in the United States it's just there's just no comparison i mean i think uh, i am no um, reflexive fan of australian politicians or governments you know state governments uh, but i think that whatever we might say about the detail of of the response in Australia by particular state governments. You know, no one's been saying that the virus doesn't exist. No one's been saying that the demands of individual freedom mean that that no one should wear a mask. You know, you haven't had premiers saying that like governors have been saying it here. And so, you know, to know all of that, to know that for all the flaws of the Australian state and its statelets at the state level, that, that it's actually kind of, worked reasonably well uh, there have been you know authoritarian excesses there have been disproportionate arrests and enforcement on marginalized communities but but in terms of the number of people who've contracted coronavirus and or died of it you know it's been pretty okay by comparison with the united states to see that then presented in conservative media here as a kind of dystopian situation i mean it's 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 quite amazing I think that, I, you know, I'm not in Melbourne, you guys are. I mean, I, I saw some stuff from VicPol in relation to people who I in no way agree with, you know, but, but you know, some enforcement actions from VicPol that were undeniably excessive and in, in some cases uh, pretty shocking, I think, like shockingly violent. Not going to excuse that, but I don't, uh, I don't think... I don't think that the only op- alternative to that is just no enforcement at all to, to, to not make any kind of effort to hold the spread of the virus and to, and to define that as freedom. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a tricky thing, coronavirus, but I, 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 I did object to that. I did object to this sort of widespread presentation of Australia as this kind of, you know, COVID dystopia. I, I, have you been feeling like it's a COVID dystopia, I guess? Have you been feeling like you're imprisoned in your home? Have you been feeling like, you know, 1984 is here? I, I've lost count of the, the the headlines that invoked Orwell. <laughs> have you have you been feeling that way? Maybe because of the, like, the synth comeback. It's been feeling a little 84-esque. But uh, other than that, not really. Well, what, what, I mean, what about – I mean, the, the Vic Pole thing is an interesting question, though, isn't it? Like, like those people – are not people I agree with, and I presume you agree with, you know, the anti-vax protests and stuff. But, I mean, what did you think about Vic Pohl's approach to it? Yeah, not good. 
But I mean, I, I guess the other thing is like, and I think I've been quoted on this somewhere, is there there were a bunch of different incidents, and then you would see those same incidents getting replayed over and over again in these conservative yeah. uh, online spaces, yeah. as if as exactly. if they were happening on a daily basis. Yeah, no, exactly. And 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 being, you don't want to dismiss stuff because it's not representative, but you don't want to present it as representative when it's not either. Do you know what I'm saying? Like like those those incidents were presented, I think, in conservative media here as as sort of you know characteristic examples of of the approach to coronavirus enforcement. You know, and that's just not true. I I don't think. But on the other hand, well. Do you think that does does it concern you that there has been, or or do you think, as I said before, that this is maybe just a Twitter thing? Has there been some kind of a rise in everyday authoritarianism with people kind of becoming enamoured with restrictions and lockdowns and 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 confinements, or is that just because my main lens on this is Twitter? I think on Twitter, it's much of the debate is a fairly acrimonious and bipartisan one. And so what would might otherwise be regarded as being um, excesses on the part of the police have been either downplayed or excused because they're being performed by the police force of a Labor government, which is generally yep. regarded as being a progressive one. At the same time, I, I guess that, that much as, you know, the... the Recirculation of this sort of material of, um, you know, uh, police being brutal, uh, exceeding their authority and so on, um, to the extent that those who are subject to that excessive force uh, or alleged excessive force, um, I don't suppose too many police will actually be <laughs> convicted of uh, the use of excessive force, which is, again, you know, that's an old story. The fact that, that those who've been subject to it have been identified as being among the social forces that are attempting to subvert what are otherwise considered to be generally uh, popular and sensible uh, public health management strategies to control a deadly virus makes it difficult. So I think it's a, it's a highly, so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a highly partisan environment into, into which these sorts of protests have been taking place and which have been subject to this repression. And also they have been relatively large scale and, and to, well, not necessarily to the credit, but one of the things that the police have experienced is real opposition on the streets. Many of those participating in these um, protests and some of the earlier ones um, in September or August had hundreds of able-bodied young men who were prepared to fight the police and to some yeah. extent succeeded in doing so. And I think any situation in which police authority is challenged in that manner will inevitably, almost inevitably, spark... You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. understanding on the part of police, they really need to stamp their authority on this, which is why you also saw for the first time in Melbourne uh, the use of various kinds of weaponry, right control weaponry, um, that it had not been used, had been um, procured by the police, by the state during the course of the last several years. Here was an opportunity to deploy it. So I think there was a, a range of circumstances which helped to manufacture those situations. And, um, of course, you know, for many of those who were subject to it, it was shocking because many had not been, you know, these were not experienced campaigners. These were often just, you know, angry people who were prepared to fight the police and were shocked when the police responded as they did. And I think what's more significant is, well, 
arguably more significant, is what this means for the future of protest policing. And I, it's a there's a reasonable expectation that police are going to be more able and more willing to use what would otherwise be considered to be excessive force and to deploy uh, less lethal weaponry, so-called. So the trend in terms of authoritarianism is definitely towards more brutal forms of police repression of public protest. The, the key calculation there, I think, is to what extent are police able to do this and to be greeted with uh, applause by the general public. And I think in, in the recent protests, to the extent that there's um, support for police uh, brutality, it seems to be predicated on the idea and perhaps even to some extent the reality that those gathering in these groups pose some kind of um, danger to public health. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And just to bring it back here to the US for a second, I mean, I, I have a concern that the very understandable, you know, kind of revulsion and, and alarm to say that the, 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 the events on January 6th here at the, at the Capitol in Washington, I, I can understand people being alarmed and upset about that. My concern is that a lot of the response to that from, you know, political liberals has been couched in terms of these people are, are traitors, you know, to the United States and, and, and that, that the appropriate response well, that, that the people who are opposed to this are, are patriots, you know, and and are the real patriots, you know, so that like there's a kind of a, a an affective sort of alignment with authority, I guess, and the state. And, and I, w- I wonder if there's a moment here where I'm concerned that there's a moment here where security services broadly defined, you know, the police and whoever else you want to bundle in there is, is going to not face any opposition from, from the centre left or whatever and liberals because whoever they might go after because the, the sort of security of the, uh, you know, the state is at, is at risk. I, I, I just don't know if that, I, I just, I'm not confident that that attitude is going to change if, if, the targets of repression are environmental protesters, who, environmentalist protesters who are on the more radical edge. I'm not talking about people who are bombing things or who are violent, but people who are, you know, taking radical forms of direct action. I, I just don't know. I mean, I, I think our worries may be similar anyway. Well, Jason, it's good to know that it doesn't matter what aspect of the climate apocalypse you're going through. You can always end it on a <laughs> especially sour note. Uh, but the good news is Jason Wilson and Andy Fleming both confirmed Dan stands, we can report. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, um, if people want to read more of Jason's stuff, he's on The Guardian and uh, look him up on Twitter at Jason underscore A underscore W. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me as always. Well, folks, that's all we've got time for. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later.
Victoria, as we get ready to get back out there, you need to get your COVID-19 digital certificate ready too. First, create a MyGov account if you don't have one. Then, make sure your Medicare and MyGov accounts are linked. Then, add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Then, get ready to go. Your vaccination is your ticket to everything you love and miss. For more on adding your vaccination certificate on your smartphone, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.